Section 12 of Tom Jones. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This recording is by Mark Smith of Simpsonville, South Carolina. Tom Jones by Henry Fielding. Book 4, Chapter 4, containing such very deep and grave matters that some readers, perhaps, may not relish it. Square had no sooner lighted his pipe than, addressing himself to Allworthy, he thus began, Sir, I cannot help congratulating you on your nephew, who, at an age when few lads have any ideas but of sensible objects, is arrived at a capacity of distinguishing right from wrong. To confine anything seems to me against the law of nature, by which everything hath a right to liberty. These were his words, and the impression they have made on me is never to be eradicated. Can any man have a higher notion of the rule of right, and the eternal fitness of things? I cannot help promising myself from such a dawn, that the meridian of this youth will be equal to that of either the elder or the younger Brutus. Here Thwackum hastily interrupted, and spilling some of his wine, and swallowing the rest with great eagerness, answered, <coughs> From another expression he made use of, I hope he will resemble much better men. The law of nature is a jargon of words, which means nothing. I know not of any such law, nor of any right which can be derived from it. To do as we would be done by is indeed a Christian motive, as the boy well expressed himself, and I am glad to find my instructions have borne such good fruit. If vanity was a thing fit, says Square, I might indulge some on the same occasion, for whence only he can have learnt his notions of right or wrong I think is pretty apparent. If there be no law of nature there is no right nor wrong. How, says the parson, do you then banish revelation? Am I talking with a deist or an atheist? Drink about, says Western. Pox on your laws of nature. I don't know what you mean, either of you, by right and wrong. To take away my girl's bird was wrong, in my opinion, and my neighbor Allworthy may do as he pleases. But to encourage boys in such practice— is to breed them up to the gallows. Allworthy answered, That he was sorry for what his nephew had done, but could not consent to punish him, as he acted rather from a generous than unworthy motive. He said, If the boy had stolen the bird, none would have been more ready to vote for a severe chastisement than himself. But it was plain that was not his design and indeed it was as apparent to him that he could have no other view but what he had himself avowed. For as to that malicious purpose which Sophia suspected, it never once entered into the head of Mr. Allworthy. He at length concluded with again blaming the action as inconsiderate, and which, he said, was pardonable only in a child. Square had delivered his opinion so openly that, if he was now silent, he must submit to have his judgment censured. He said, therefore, with some warmth, that Mr. Allworthy had too much respect to the dirty consideration of property, that in passing our judgments on great and mighty actions all private regards should be laid aside, 
for by adhering to those narrow rules the younger Brutus had been condemned of ingratitude, and the elder of parricide. "'And if they had been hanged too for those crimes,' cried Thwackum, "'they would have had no more than their deserts. A couple of heathenish villains! Heaven be praised we have no Brutuses nowadays. I wish, Mr. Square, that you would desist from filling the minds of my pupils with such anti-Christian stuff.' for their consequence must be, while they are under my care, its being well scourged out of them again. There is your disciple Tom, almost spoiled already. I overheard him the other day, disputing with Master Bliffill that there was no merit in faith without works. I know that is one of your tenets, and I suppose he had it from you. "'Don't accuse me of spoiling him,' says Square. Who taught him to laugh at whatever is virtuous and decent, and fit and right in the nature of things? He is your own scholar, and I disclaim him. No, no, Master Bliffill is my boy. Young as he is, that lad's notion of moral rectitude I defy you ever to eradicate." Thwackum put on a contemptuous sneer at this, and replied, "'Ay, ay, I will venture him with you. He is too well grounded for all your philosophical cant to hurt. No, no, I have taken care to instill such principles into him. And I have instilled principles into him too, cries Square. What but the sublime idea of virtue could inspire a human mind with the generous thought of giving liberty? And I repeat to you again, if it was a fit thing to be proud, I might claim the honour of having infused that idea. And if pride was not forbidden, said Thwackum, I might boast of having taught him that duty which he himself assigned as his motive. So between you both, says the squire, the young gentleman hath been taught to rob my daughter of her bird. <clears throat> I find I must take care of my partridge mew. I shall have some virtuous religious man or other set all my partridges at liberty. Then, slapping a gentleman of the law who was present on the back, he cried out, "'What say you to this, Mr. Counselor? Is not this against law?' The lawyer, with great gravity, delivered himself as follows. "'If the case be put of a partridge, there can be no doubt but an action would lie. For though this be ferre naturae, yet being reclaimed, property vests.' But being the case of a singing bird, though reclaimed, as it is a thing of base nature, it must be considered as nullius in bonus. In this case, therefore, I conceive the plaintiff must be non-suited, and I should disadvise the bringing of any such action. Well, says the squire, if it be nullus bonus, let us drink about, and talk a little of the state of the nation, or some such discourse that we all understand, for I am sure I don't understand a word of this. It may be learning and sense for aught I know, but you shall never persuade me into it. Pox! You have neither of you mentioned a word of that poor lad who deserves to be commended, to venture breaking his neck to oblige my girl, was a generous-spirited action. I have learning enough to see that. Damn me, here's Tom's health. I shall love the boy for it the longest day I have to live. 
Thus was the debate interrupted, but it would probably have been soon resumed had not Mr. Allworthy presently called for his coach, and carried off the two combatants. Such was the conclusion of this adventure of the bird, and of the dialogue occasioned by it, which we could not help recounting to our reader, though it happened some years before that stage or period of time at which our history is now arrived. End of chapter 4 Chapter 5 Containing Matter Accommodated to Every Taste Parva leves capiunt animos, small things affect light minds, was the sentiment of a great master of the passion of love. And certain it is, that from this day Sophia began to have some little kindness for Tom Jones, and no little aversion for his companion. Many accidents from time to time improve both these passions in her breast, which, without our recounting, the reader may well conclude, from what we have before hinted of, the different tempers of these lads, and how much the one suited with her own inclinations more than the other. To say the truth, Sophia, when very young, discerned that Tom, though an idle, thoughtless, rattling rascal, was nobody's enemy but his own, and that Master Bliffill, though a prudent, discreet, sober young gentleman, was at the same time strongly attached to the interest of only one single person, and who that single person was, the reader will be able to divine without any assistance of ours. These two characters are not always received in the world with a different regard which seems severally due to either, and which one would imagine mankind, from self-interest, should show towards them. But perhaps there may be a political reason for it. In finding one of a truly benevolent disposition, men may very reasonably suppose they have found a treasure, and be desirous of keeping it, like all other good things, to themselves. Hence they may imagine that to trumpet forth the praises of such a person would, in the vulgar phrase, be crying roast meat, and calling in partakers of what they intend to apply solely to their own use. If this reason does not satisfy the reader, I know no other means of accounting for the little respect which I have commonly seen paid to a character which really does great honour to human nature, and is productive of the highest good to society. But it was otherwise with Sophia. She honoured Tom Jones, and scorned Master Bliffville, almost as soon as she knew the meaning of those two words. Sophia had been absent upwards of three years with her aunt, during all which time she had seldom seen either of these young gentlemen. She dined, however, once, together with her aunt, at Mr. Allworthy's. This was a few days after the adventure of the partridge, before commemorated. Sophia heard the whole story at table, where she said nothing, nor indeed could her aunt get many words from her as she returned home. But her maid, when undressing her, happened to say, "'Well, miss, I suppose you have seen young Master Bliffill to-day?' She answered with much passion, "'I hate the name of Master Bliffill, as I do whatever is base and treacherous, and I wonder Mr. Allworthy would suffer that old barbarous schoolmaster to punish a poor boy so cruelly for what was only the effect of his good nature.' She then recounted the story to her maid and concluded with saying, 
don't you think he is a boy of noble spirit this young lady was now returned to her father who gave her the command of his house and placed her at the upper end of his table where tom who for his great love of hunting was become a great favourite of the squire often dined young men of open generous dispositions are naturally inclined to gallantry which if they have good understandings as was in reality tom's case exerts itself in an obliging complacent behaviour to all women in general this greatly distinguished tom from the boisterous brutality of mere country squires on the one hand and from the solemn and somewhat sullen deportment of master blifil on the other and he began now at twenty to have the name of a pretty fellow among all the women in the neighbourhood tom behaved to sophia with no particularity unless perhaps by showing her a higher respect than he paid to any other this distinction her beauty fortune sense and amiable carriage seemed to demand but as to design upon her person he had none for which we shall at present suffer the reader to condemn him of stupidity but perhaps we shall be able indifferently well to account for it hereafter sophia with the highest degree of innocence and modesty had a remarkable sprightliness in her temper this was so greatly increased whenever she was in company with tom that had he not been very young and thoughtless he must have observed it or had not mr western's thoughts been generally either in the field the stable or the dog kennel it might have perhaps created some jealousy in him but so far was the good gentleman from entertaining any such suspicions that he gave tom every opportunity with his daughter which any lover could have wished and this tom innocently improved to better advantage by following only the dictates of his natural gallantry and good nature than he might perhaps have done had he had the deepest designs on the young lady but indeed it can occasion little wonder that this matter escaped the observation of others since poor sophia herself never remarked it and her heart was irretrievably lost before she suspected it was in danger matters were in this situation when tom one afternoon finding sophia alone began after a short apology with a very serious face to acquaint her that he had a favour to ask of her which he hoped her goodness would comply with though neither the young man's behaviour nor indeed his manner of opening this business was such as could give her any just cause of suspecting he intended to make love to her yet whether nature whispered something into her ear or from what cause it arose i will not determine certain it is some idea of that kind must have intruded itself for her colour forsook her cheeks her limbs trembled and her tongue would have faltered had tom stopped for an answer but he soon relieved her from her perplexity by proceeding to inform her of his request which was to solicit her interest on behalf of the gamekeeper whose own ruin and that of a large family must be he said the consequence of mr western's pursuing his action against him sophia presently recovered her confusion and with a smile full of sweetness said is this the mighty favour you asked with so much gravity 
I will do it with all my heart. I really pity the poor fellow, and no longer ago than yesterday sent a small matter to his wife. This small matter was one of her gowns, some linen, and ten shillings in money, of which Tom had heard, and it had in reality put this solicitation into his head. Our youth, now, emboldened with his success, resolved to push the matter farther, and ventured even to beg her recommendation of him to her father's service, protesting that he thought him one of the honestest fellows in the country, and extremely well qualified for the place of a gamekeeper, which luckily then happened to be vacant. Sophia answered, "'Well, I will undertake this, too, but I cannot promise you as much success as in the former part, which I assure you I will not quit my father without obtaining. However, I will do what I can for the poor fellow, for I sincerely look upon him and his family as objects of great compassion. And now, Mr. Jones, I must ask you a favour.' "'A favour, madam!' cries Tom. If you knew the pleasure you have given me, and the hopes of receiving a command from you, you would think by mentioning it you did confer the greatest favour on me, for by this dear hand I would sacrifice my life to oblige you." He then snatched her hand, and eagerly kissed it, which was the first time his lips had ever touched her. The blood, which before had forsaken her cheeks, now made her sufficient amends by rushing all over her face and neck with such violence that they became all of a scarlet colour. She now first felt a sensation to which she had been before a stranger, and which, when she had leisure to reflect on it, began to acquaint her with some secrets, which the reader, if he doth not already guess them, will know in due time. Sophia, as soon as she could speak, which was not instantly, informed him that the favour she had to desire of him was, not to lead her father through so many dangers in hunting, for that, from what she had heard, she was terribly frightened every time they went out together, and expected some day or other to see her father brought home with broken limbs. She therefore begged him, for her sake, to be more cautious, and as he well knew Mr. Western would follow him, not to ride so madly nor to take those dangerous leaps for the future. Tom promised faithfully to obey her commands, and after thanking her for her kind compliance with his request, took his leave, and departed highly charmed with his success. Poor Sophia was charmed too, but in a very different way. Her sensations, however, the reader's heart, if he or she have any, will better represent than I can if I had as many mouths as ever poet wished for, to eat, I suppose, those many dainties with which he was so plentifully provided. It was Mr. Western's custom every afternoon, as soon as he was drunk, to hear his daughter play on the harpsichord, for he was a great lover of music, and perhaps, had he lived in town, might have passed for a connoisseur for he always accepted against the finest compositions of Mr. Handel. He never relished any music but what was light and airy, and indeed his most favourite tunes were Old Sir Simon the King, St. George he was for England, Bobbing Joan, and some others. His daughter, 
though she was a perfect mistress of music, and would never willingly have played any but Handel's, was so devoted to her father's pleasure that she learnt all those tunes to oblige him. However, she would now and then endeavour to lead him into her own taste, and when he required the repetition of his ballads, would answer with a, Nay, dear sir, and would often beg him to suffer her to play something else. This evening, however, when the gentleman was retired from his bottle, she played all his favourites three times over without any solicitation. This so pleased the good squire that he started from this couch, gave his daughter a kiss, and swore her hand was greatly improved. She took this opportunity to execute her promise to Tom, in which she succeeded so well that the squire declared, if she would give him the other bout of old Sir Simon, he would give the gamekeeper his deputation the next morning. Sir Simon was played again and again, till the charms of the music soothed Mr. Western to sleep. In the morning Sophia did not fail to remind him of his engagement, and his attorney was immediately sent for, ordered to stop any further proceedings in the action, and to make out the deputation. Tom's success in this affair soon began to ring over the country, and various were the censures passed upon it, some greatly applauding it as an act of good nature, others sneering, and saying, No wonder that one idle fellow should love another. Young Bliffville was greatly enraged at it. He had long hated Black George in the same proportion as Jones delighted in him not from any offence which he had ever received, but from his great love to religion and virtue. For Black George had the reputation of a loose kind of a fellow. Bliffill therefore represented this as flying in Mr. Allworthy's face, and declared, with great concern, that it was impossible to find any other motive for doing good to such a wretch. Thwackham and Square likewise sung to the same tune, they were now, especially the latter, become greatly jealous of young Jones with the widow, for he now approached the age of twenty, was really a fine young fellow, and that lady, by her encouragements to him, seemed daily more and more to think him so. Allworthy was not, however, moved with their malice. He declared himself very well satisfied with what Jones had done. He said the perseverance and integrity of his friendship was highly commendable, and he wished he could see more frequent instances of that virtue. But Fortune, who seldom greatly relishes such sparks as my friend Tom, perhaps because they do not pay more ardent addresses to her, gave now a very different turn to all his actions, and showed them to Mr. Allworthy in a light far less agreeable than that gentleman's goodness had hitherto seen them in. End of chapter 5 Chapter 6 An Apology for the Insensibility of Mr. Jones to All the Charms of the Lovely Sophia, in which possibly we may, in a considerable degree, lower his character in the estimation of those men of wit and gallantry who approve the heroes in most of our modern comedies. There are two sorts of people who, I am afraid, have already conceived some contempt for my hero, on account of his behaviour to Sophia. 
the former of these will blame his prudence in neglecting an opportunity to possess himself of mr western's fortune and the latter will no less despise him for his backwardness to so fine a girl who seemed ready to fly into his arms if he would open them to receive her now though i shall not perhaps be able absolutely to acquit him of either of these charges for want of prudence admits of no excuse, and what I shall produce against the latter charge will, I apprehend, be scarce satisfactory. Yet, as evidence may sometimes be offered in mitigation, I shall set forth the plain matter of fact, and lead the whole to the reader's determination. Mr. Jones had somewhat about him, which, though I think writers are not thoroughly agreed in its name, doth certainly inhabit some human breasts, whose use is not so properly to distinguish right from wrong, as to prompt and incite them to the former, and to restrain and withhold them from the latter. This somewhat may be indeed resembled to the famous trunk-maker in the playhouse, for whenever the person who is possessed of it doth what is right, no ravished or friendly spectator is so eager or so loud in his applause. On the contrary, when he doth wrong, no critic is so apt to hiss and explode him. To give a higher idea of the principle I mean, as well as one more familiar to the present age, it may be considered as sitting on its throne in the mind, like the Lord High Chancellor of this kingdom in his court, where it presides, governs, directs, judges, acquits, and condemns according to merit and justice, with a knowledge which nothing escapes, a penetration which nothing can deceive, and an integrity which nothing can corrupt. This active principle may perhaps be said to constitute the most essential barrier between us and our neighbours, the brutes, for if there be some in the human shape who are not under any such dominion, I choose rather to consider them as deserters from us to our neighbours, among whom they will have the fate of deserters, and not be placed in the first rank. Our hero, whether he derived it from Thwackham or Square I will not determine, was very strongly under the guidance of this principle, for though he did not always act rightly, yet he never did otherwise without feeling and suffering for it. It was this which taught him, that to repay the civilities and little friendships of hospitality by robbing the house where you have received them is to be the basest and meanest of thieves. He did not think the baseness of this offence lessened by the height of the injury committed. On the contrary, if to steal another's plate deserved death and infamy, it seemed to him difficult to assign a punishment adequate to the robbing a man of his whole fortune and of his child into the bargain. This principle, therefore, prevented him from any thought of making his fortune by such means. For this, as I have said, is an active principle, and doth not content itself with knowledge or belief only. Had he been greatly enamoured of Sophia, he possibly might have thought otherwise. But give me leave to say, there is great difference between running away with a man's daughter from the motive of love and doing the same thing from the motive of theft. Now, though this young gentleman was not insensible of the charms of Sophia, though he greatly liked her beauty, 
and esteemed all her other qualifications. She had made, however, no deep impression on his heart, for which, as it renders him liable to the charge of stupidity, or at least want of taste, we shall now proceed to account. The truth, then, is, his heart was in the possession of another woman. Here I question not, but the reader will be surprised at our long taciturnity as to this matter, and quite at a loss to define who this woman was, since we have hitherto not dropped a hint of any one likely to be a rival to Sophia. For as to Mrs. Bliffill, though we have been obliged to mention some suspicions of her affection for Tom, we have not hitherto given the least latitude for imagining that he had any for her. And indeed, I am sorry to say it, but the youth of both sexes are too apt to be deficient in their gratitude for that regard, with which persons more advanced in years are sometimes so kind to honour them. That the reader may be no longer in suspense, he will be pleased to remember that we have often mentioned the family of George Seagram, commonly called Black George the Gamekeeper, which consisted at present of a wife and five children. The second of these children was a daughter, whose name was Molly, and who was esteemed one of the handsomest girls in the whole country. Congrave well says that there is, in true beauty, something which vulgar souls cannot admire, so can no dirt or rags hide this something from those souls which are not of the vulgar stamp. The beauty of this girl made, however, no impression on Tom, till she grew towards the age of sixteen, when Tom, who was near three years older, began first to cast the eyes of affection upon her. And this affection he had fixed on the girl long before he could bring himself to attempt the possession of her person, for though his constitution urged him greatly to this, his principles no less forcibly restrained him. To debauch a young woman, however low her condition was, appeared to him a very heinous crime, and the goodwill he bore the father, with the compassion he had for his family, very strongly corroborated all such sober reflections, so that he once resolved to get the better of his inclinations, and he actually abstained three whole months without ever going to Seagram's house, or seeing his daughter. Now. Though Molly was, as we have said, generally thought a very fine girl, and in reality she was so, yet her beauty was not of the most amiable kind. It had indeed very little of feminine in it, and would have become a man at least as well as a woman, for, to say the truth, youth and florid health had a very considerable share in the composition. Nor was her mind more effeminate than her person. As this was tall and robust, so was that bold and forward. So little had she of modesty, that Jones had more regard for her virtue than she herself, and as most probably she liked Tom as well as he liked her, so when she perceived his backwardness, she herself grew proportionably forward, and when she saw he had entirely deserted the house, she found means of throwing herself in his way and behaved in such a manner that the youth must have had very much, or very little of the hero, if her endeavours had proved unsuccessful. In a word, she soon triumphed over all the virtuous resolutions of Jones, 
for though she behaved at last with all decent reluctance, yet I rather choose to attribute the triumph to her, since in fact it was her design which succeeded. In the conduct of this matter, I say, Molly so well played her part, that Jones attributed the conquest entirely to himself, and considered the young woman as one who had yielded to the violent attacks of his passion. He likewise imputed her yielding to the ungovernable force of her love towards him, and this the reader will allow to have been a very natural and probable supposition, as we have more than once mentioned the uncommon comeliness of his person, and indeed he was one of the handsomest young fellows in the world. As there are some minds whose affections, like Master Bliffill's, are solely placed on one single person, whose interest and indulgence alone they consider on every occasion, regarding the good and ill of all others as merely indifferent, any farther than they contribute to the pleasure or advantage of that person, so there is a different temper of mind which borrows a degree of virtue even from self-love. Such can never receive any kind of satisfaction from another, without loving the creature to whom that satisfaction is owing and without making its well-being in some sort necessary to their own ease. Of this latter species was our hero. He considered this poor girl as one whose happiness or misery he had caused to be dependent on himself. Her beauty was still the object of desire, though greater beauty, or a fresher object, might have been more so. But the little abatement which fruition had occasioned to this was highly overbalanced by the considerations of the affection which she visibly bore him, and of the situation into which he had brought her. The former of these created gratitude, the latter compassion, and both, together with his desire for her person, raised in him a passion which might, without any great violence to the word, be called love, though perhaps it was at first not very judiciously placed. This, then, was the true reason of that insensibility which he had shown to the charms of Sophia, and that behaviour in her which might have been reasonably enough interpreted as an encouragement to his addresses, for as he could not think of abandoning his Molly, poor and destitute as she was, so no more could he entertain a notion of betraying such a creature as Sophia. And surely, had he given the least encouragement to any passion for that young lady, he must have been absolutely guilty of one or other of these crimes, either of which would, in my opinion, have very justly subjected him to that fate which, at his first introduction into this history, I mentioned to have been generally predicted as his certain destiny. End of chapter 6 End of section 12